Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Ben Harburg, founder and managing partner at MSA Capital. Hi, Ben. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Thanks for having me. So before we jump in, it's our tradition to learn a little bit about your background. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Nomadic, uh, born in Colorado, but lived in five U.S. states and uh, two other countries uh, before I even hit college. And since I graduated from college, I left the U.S. and haven't been back. So uh, uh, the true definition of a nomad. Yeah, or or a global citizen, as others would like to call it. Why? why how is it that you moved around so much? Uh, at the beginning was my dad's job. Uh, just he was working largely for General Motors and moving around to different um, countries and, and geographies for that. And then. Since graduating from college, I always wanted to live and work out in the world, and, uh, and I made that happen from day one. Yeah, it's amazing. So why, what, what is it that sparked your interest about kind of being this global nomad? You know, like what, what, when you were a kid, did you know that, or is it just kind of what your existence was and what you were familiar with? No, certainly. I mean, I went to an international school in Zurich for a, a few years of high school, and you know, we were competing in sports against teams from as far away as Israel or Egypt, and then you know, in Germany and Austria and France, and it kind of you know, we traveled around the, the, the world a lot, and and I, I just feel very comfortable out in the world, and I, I communicate and do business and, and engage well with other people, so I just wanted to be out there with them. Yeah. So what did you what did you want to be? Did you know you wanted to go into finance or is there another job you thought you'd do? No, um, my Touring career, yeah, my, my, my dream job at the time was to be a diplomat. So to go into the foreign service, yeah, and, makes sense. And do, do something along those lines. And I had a lot of internships uh, in that field over the course of my college career. And, and even my first kind of postgraduate thing in a Fulbright scholarship was along those lines, but uh, ultimately realized that business was the place for me. And I got this really great piece of advice where someone told me, if you go to business first, you can always come back to government. Uh, whereas if you go to government first, it's hard to transition to business. And so I kind of took that to heart. Oh, all right. So definitely political aspirations. We'll get to that later. But uh, so when, when you were thinking about business, it seems like a lot of your, so you're based in Asia now. So th that's where you, you gravitated. Why that part of the world? Because you could have gone to Latin America, you could have gone anywhere. Uh, you know, I, I believe that the China-U.S. dynamic is is really the single bilateral relationship that will shape all of our future from regards to business, um, civil military affairs, uh, economics, of course, even things like climate. Uh, it's the most important relationship out there, and there are fewer and fewer Americans that understand China and have spent significant time on the ground in China. And I, I just felt it was so important to be there and to understand the market. And, and that would make me a better global citizen, hopefully a steward of American interests down the road, if I can help add that perspective. Yeah, interesting. So your first trade is one of your best, and that is catching the boom in China tech, which included um, a, a specific investment we'll talk about. I think it's Boss Zippin. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. An online recruitment platform in China. But set the scene for us. So were you already, with that idea that China was this important relationship, were you already living in China? Were you kind of traveling around Asia? How did you, what's going on in your life at this time? Yeah. 
So when I, I, I came to China in 2004 as an intern for Motorola, and that kind of gave me a sense of the growth and the, the upward momentum that was already in place. But, but you know, even then, it was, it was still very early innings, and I returned to China 2009, 2010 on, on a, essentially a, bi, you know, a bi-monthly basis, really t- as, as a commodities trader. And we were selling you know, raw materials into China at the time. We were selling energy commodities and, and, and metal ores. Uh, but I was witnessing along the way the growth of the Chinese technology companies, and we were hearing about na- cute names like Tencent, which at the time didn't mean much, and you know Alibaba with this kind of funky logo, and you know that it was it was really a still a, a relatively unknown market, and and the technology companies there didn't have global standing. But it felt to me like it was a secular momentum towards uh, this becoming a global technology power and a major um, market for investment. And so ultimately in 2014, 2015, I sold out of everything I had in the commodity space and put it all into investing in China technology. So are you do you are are you fluent? Do you like what was your experience when you first even as a commodity trader, when you first started doing business there? What did you have? sort of an idea about what you thought China was and how did it differ? You know, what was the experience of sort of once you started spending time and boots on the ground there? Again, back to that point around the chemistry. I mean, I always just felt very comfortable doing business in China, whether it was with state-owned enterprises or with technology founders, uh, other investors. Um, There was just a a really good resonance when I engaged with them and they seemed to appreciate my approach to them and to the culture and to the to the, the way business was done. And so I had always felt comfortable there, both in the commodities context as well as in the investment side. Um, on, the, on the commodity side, I had a lot more depth of experience. And so when I entered into the investment side, I, of course, had to surround myself with incredible partners. Um, and we today have some of the best, I think, investment professionals and co-founders of MSA um, that deeply understood the industry and could really uh, guide and 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 do a lot of the local local type of investing diligence and sourcing that I wasn't capable of, and I could kind of add more of a global angle, uh, an institutionalization of the firm, and and also obviously global capital for investment. Yeah, what do you, what what do you think made it different that you had this relationship? Because there is a a long cemetery of people that have tried to do business in China and have just found it difficult, either difficult to operate, difficult to understand difficult to function, difficult to communicate. I mean, the list is as long as my arm. What, why, what, what was it about your approach you think was different? I think, you know, China's a very high-touch market. It requires a deep kind of appreciation and study of where the market is heading, and who really are the key partners to work with and the forces at play. And a lot of times what you see on paper um, is looks really good, but it's the wrong kind of partner. A simple example is we were Airbnb investors and for for years, the founders of Airbnb were working with us to kind of identify a, a lead for their China team. And over and over, we told them it's probably not someone who speaks good English and doesn't have kind of an American uh, education and Silicon Valley pedigree. It's probably someone who's really, uh, you know, kind of a, a warrior in the trenches. And they always gravitated towards someone that kind of had that, you know, EUS East Coast or West Coast education background and worked for a global technology company. And ultimately, they've essentially exited the market now. They were never able to kind of figure out the regulatory side of things, the localization side of things. They always did very superficial adjustments. And so, as you said, there's a graveyard of, of, of Western, particularly technology companies, as they tried to approach China, let alone investors or, or others. And, it, and so you've really got to understand what how to localize your product and what unique kind of value proposition you offer, because if it's not unique 
enough and moated enough, you're going to get smoked immediately. Yeah. So what what is it about this this particular online recruitment firm? So you start, you're now focused on technology, you're making investments. Were you successful right away or did or are some of the things you're talking about learn from your own failure? Uh we were we were pretty much successful right out the gate, but I have to say the timing was good. So I, I you know the 2015 to 2017 vintages, uh, even up to 2021, were really good times in the Chinese technology market. There was still a lot of low hanging fruit. Um, those key kind of consumer and enterprise facing models were in their nascency. And remember that you know the U.S. had a 40 50 year head start on China when it came to technology investment. Um, you know, a lot of the big U.S. names started, you know, in the, you know, kind of 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, you know, the first real Chinese VC funds only came about in 2006, 2010. And so we're really in kind of the first or second generation of investment. And so there were a lot of opportunities to invest in models and companies that had already significant precedent in the United States, but we could kind of grab the first wave in China. And so we essentially took a page out of the Silicon Valley playbook to look at those models that were lacking in the China market and then kind of bought what we believe to be the sector winner in each one of those verticals. And without, almost without exception, we were, we were pretty good at picking them. Yeah, timing, being in the right place at the right time matters, right? I mean, that, 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 is, that is key. So what is it that put Boss Zippin on your radar? What caught your attention about that one? So for us, it was clear that there was, you know, a huge growth in technology companies and that would necessitate a lot of hiring. Um, the incumbent uh, uh, player in the space was a very kind of PC oriented um, company called uh, Zalping, which the name is almost similar, um, uh, but had they had never been able to really transition to a uh, a kind of a mobile first model and they weren't really that user friendly for this next generation of of folks. So kind of think Monster versus Indeed or some mm -hmm. of the other kind of existing players in the, in the US market. Um, and so we were actually able to pluck the COO of Zalpin out and he came with, you know, that experience of all of the things that were going wrong in that business. And he could kind of translate that to the new one. So kind of say, okay, we know everything that's bad about, about the kind of incumbent player. Let's fix all of those and make a very user-friendly, almost like Tinder for hiring, kind of literally swipe right and swipe left and disintermediate the recruiting agencies and enable um, these, you know, high growth companies and their recruiting departments or even just their founders to directly engage with um, potential recruits and to do so it again not unlike a tinder uh, in a way that's algorithmically matching them so that we're making sure that these are the people that are active on the site so you're not getting a lot of dead links you're getting very rapid um, interactions you're getting very quick connections and your success rate ends up being very high and in china we don't track numbers like npi or uh, you know some or an nps scores you know these these kind of user kind of engagement and user um, uh, uh, preference type scoring, but but it but this would have the highest uh, level of if if we had those kind of scores because every founder we talked to just loved the product and couldn't talk uh, enough positively about it. So we knew the product worked, and likewise we knew the founder was kind of a revenge founder. He was someone that wanted to prove himself. He was actually not someone who fit the kind of traditional pedigree. He didn't have a a good background kind of in, you know, from a significant university. He didn't have kind of the, you know, literally the physical profile of someone that you'd traditionally back. And so essentially the entire VC community dismissed him when he was coming to market. And he was passed over, I think, by a by hundred plus VCs um, who didn't either believe in the model or him as a person. And we were really the only people at the Series B when the company was out of money 
to come in and buy a 4% uh, or $4 million down for a 10% stake in the business and really save the business. Um, and that ended up being, again, one of the best trades we've ever made. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. Yeah, I mean, it it just, I, I, there's so many things in there I want to ask you about, but it ended up being a phenomenal trade for you, right? That's right. That's right. So the company ultimately IPO'd. We, we bought in at a $40 million valuation. It ultimately IPO'd and has, has sat pretty comfortably around the $16 billion valuation. It's come down a little bit uh, with the overall Chinese stock market, but we expect it will, will rebound nicely in the coming quarters. And you're, you're still in these because as a VC, you're in for the, for the longer haul. So this isn't a quick investment and out. You're still invested in this company. No, we, we invested in 2015 and you know we have a 10-year fund life with extension of two years like most VC funds. So we're still comfortably in the range where we don't need to exit today. So it's interesting when you say that everyone else turned him down. I think that's fascinating. So this was, this was a risky move. Why were you so sure as somebody who sort of, it sounds like you kind of immerse yourself in the culture there. Um, it sounds like a, a real contrarian move. Why, why, why did you do that? First, we, we believe there was a demand for this, and, and we believe that the existing incumbent was broken. Um, and so for us, that was, you know, we were looking for a company in this sector, and we, we go sector by sector. So for instance, we knew EVs were going to be a big thing in China, and we backed what ultimately became one of the most valuable EV companies in the market and, and was for many, many years the market leader. And so, you know, we've, so, so we knew that there was a demand for this. We believed that the founder was the right person for it because he understood his industry so intimately. And, and we were turned off by the fact that he didn't have that kind of pedigree, you know, the, the communication style. He's a, he's a yeah. pretty frequent smoker. He's got uh, black teeth almost. So he doesn't, he kind of turns off a lot of investors. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, in the round that we invested, he was actually the, the second most um, uh, largest contributor. He put all of his own money in. So he was all in on this business. Yeah, for, for, him, for all was, the other signs. So interesting right. though, that, 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 cause you know, you, you, everyone's drawn to the charismatic founder and sometimes that makes the company. So to sort of, you know, bet on a horse that a lot of other people are not, are ignoring um, is, is really interesting. How, when you're, when you're sort of navigating this, how many find it hard to sort of evaluate given the level of government involvement in China? So how, how do you approach that? How do you think about that when you're looking at these different sectors? So navigating the regulatory landscape in China for us is one of our key key functions. Um, and again, the way we do that is listening very intently to the, what the regulators are saying and to what the kind of key decision makers are saying. And what always surprises us is that the you know investors outside of the market tend to you know act with so much shock uh, that changes are being made. For instance, most you know kind of most prominently recently was the effects or the actions being taken against the uh, education sector in China and the fact that many of the companies were essentially wiped off the map because they were told they had to become nonprofits. That was a shift that we knew was coming for many years. We had been hearing from our friends that were owning K through twelve education. Um, 
programs that they weren't going to be able to list, they weren't going to be able to sell. Um, uh, we knew that Xi Jinping had taken a very specific focus on education and it was very sensitive, curricula was very sensitive. And then at a more fundamental level, we knew that many of these were just bad businesses, were using uh, investor money to kind of buy users that weren't you know, sticky to the business. And so as a firm, we stayed entirely away from that sector where many others chased it. And so we're unaffected by the regulatory shifts there, but it just requires a deep listening to what's going on in the market. Mm. So what lesson, I mean, it, you you went with this sort of, you know, founder that most didn't like, but you believed in the sector, you believed in him. It certainly has paid off to date. What lesson do you think you took away from that? We have to believe in ourselves and not follow the crowd. I mean, over and over and over, the crowd have invested in the wrong models in China. They've invested in these high cash burn to grow models that, you know, we're in the kind of consumer facing spaces. Um, or today we saw a lot of folks chasing, you know, what we believe to be AI mirages or whatever is kind of the big trend of the day. Our, our job is to be four or five years ahead of the trends uh, and to invest with deep conviction in the founders and in the verticals that we know will be big, but it'll take you four or five years to fully appreciate that. And this model uh, and founder just proved that over again. Do you do you feel as a VC, you, we've seen a lot of, I think, investment VC move out of China just because of the difficulties of the market. Do you, you feel like you operate there freely, that you can kind of make the kind of investment decisions that you want without any barriers from the government? It's, uh, you know, you have to navigate it and and, and there are pockets of, of risk and uh, there are certain sectors in China today which you cannot invest in with U.S. dollars. You have to use local RMB funds um, in order to, to address these more sensitive sectors. But we feel quite free. If anything, the challenge we face today is that because of the geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S., um, there are more and more restrictions of Western capital coming into the market, Western core technology inputs, be it chips, um, uh, you know, uh, equipment, software, um, that, that, that particularly in the U.S., they view as aiding kind of in the Chinese technological growth and, and, and competition with the West. Um, so that's been the bigger uh, thing for us to navigate uh, today is that geopolitical side of things. And so we have to kind of keep, keep moving on both sides of the equation. Yeah. So what do you think investors and policymakers repeatedly get wrong about China since you're you're you spent you're there you you live there even though you, sp you split your time and travel around the world to your different offices what do you think both investors and policymakers are getting wrong uh, so two two different very different camps because the the policymakers and from the kind of the media and other other kind of folks on particularly the, the western and eastern seaboards of the United States um, I think view China as a looming threat. And that that kind of tension and, and those the, the, the perception that China is going to kind of envelop more and more territory geographically and and kind of go head to head with the U.S. and multilateral institutions and financially um, is something that they want to guard against. And that's that's the traditional response for an incumbent power to a rising power. Um, I don't think that China has the same level of kind of displacement aspirations that, that Western policymakers think they do have. China, of course, wants to ensure its future economic stability and provide for its population. Um, but I do, but I think we overstate the risk of China um, looking to kind of take over territory, be it, you know, Taiwan or uh, elsewhere around the world. This is a the country that has historically not been um, as expansion oriented as we believe it to be. And really what they're looking for is new trade partners, new economic partners, and just again, um, uh, a, a, a security around their ability to feed the, the, you know, the billion and a half mouths that they have every day. 
Um, on the investment side, I think it's, again, it, what we've seen folks getting wrong is that they're trying to trade China from abroad. Folks sitting in, in places like New York and, and trying to, um, you know, read the tea leaves and determine what's going to be the next big thing in China. And it's impossible to do that. You have to be on the ground. You have to be deeply locally integrated. You have to be listening to where the regulatory slipstream is moving. And rather than being a victim of these changes on the China side, you can be a beneficiary by understanding where is the government placing its investment support, regulatory support, and you can you can be a beneficiary of, of, of the current dynamics between U.S. and China or, rather than a victim. Mm. I, I imagine like corporations, you, you have to partner with a, a local Chinese entity or like when you say partners, that's what you mean, right? No, I mean investment partners. So I mean, just right. having people on the ground that deeply understand their sectors, understand the regulatory environment. Uh, but no, we don't have to have any local partners. We are uh, uh, predominantly a you know a, a firm made up of Chinese national investment professionals. Oh, I'm surprised because most corporations, at least, you know, have to kind of go through the local affiliate. You know, there has to be a Chinese company that they partner with in order to operate, but they don't have that same requirement. No, no, nothing like that. So um, this brings us to your second trade, which is your worst. And and this is your worst trades, interestingly, are not specific trades, but they're kind of broader themes, which I find fascinating. And that's greed, <laughs> repeatedly not taking gains off the table. I think this is going to be something that a lot of people uh, can relate to and probably struggle with as well. So was that the case with the China tech boom? What so I think certainly in kind of 2021, as we were you know, witnessing this GameStop rise in valuations, um, we took some money off the table where we could. We were unfortunately in some of our biggest positions still in lockup. And so we didn't have, uh, but literally kind of at the peak of the GameStop mania, I remember that night, you know, just working the phones nonstop with our brokers to sell everything I could get my hands on um, or that was accessible to us. Um, but but I but but you know they, they, some of those highs still lingered for a few more months. But they you know when they kind of came down a little bit off of those highs from the GameStop mania, that's when we should have taken some of our money off the table because we were out of lockup. And I think there was still this you know kind of lingering thought in our mind that we might get back up to those highs, um, and that you know that, that that was kind of maybe a trough in a in another higher peak. Um, and obviously now it's been a fairly secular decline uh, over the last you know, 18 months, particularly in the Chinese market, um, coming out of really stringent zero COVID policies. And so uh, certainly in, in kind of the 2021, um, uh, 2020 era, we could have probably taken more, you know, kind of crystallized more value than we, than we did. Yeah. Well, when, do you, when do you realize, like you call it your worst trade, is this, do you feel like this is something that happens repeatedly or when did you first think like, this isn't just like a timing issue, this is just us like reaching more than we should? Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's largely a one-off in our experience to date. Other than that, we've been pretty good about profit taking, um, but there were just you know a few of these really significant positions that had um, really great value creation and and rather than crystallizing it, we just kind of kept pushing for higher numbers or setting kind of our, our our bottom sale price a little bit higher than where we were at the time, and didn't didn't crystallize it. Um, and and I guess I, I guess we just you know we 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 had you know we 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 knew what we were walking into. This was not a this was a slow slow moving car crash with interest rates where they were with you know with QV and, and you know all, all the different kind of um, uh, financial levers being used mm. to uh, that were driving downward pressure on the market but we you know I think you know there was just this perception that the party might go on a little bit longer than anticipated 
Yeah. It's hard when, when, uh, you sort of love the narrative, right? It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to, to let go. So, uh, your third trade, this brings us to your third trade. It's also one of your best, and this is investing in NIO, which is an EV company, but, but, but this is outside of China, I think. So again, what's set the, set the stage for us, what's happening at this time in your life and your career. Sure. Uh, so Neo is is one of the largest Chinese electric vehicle companies. Um, uh, it was a company that during the, again the peak of that 20, uh, 2021 craze reached as high as about ninety eight billion in market cap, and we had uh, put a significant ticket into the business at a at a one billion dollar valuation, which was essentially the first institutional funding round of the company. It had kind of a previous kind of friends and family round before that, um, and. And again, kind of, it was it was a business founded by a you know, what we'd call serial entrepreneur, someone who had founded a couple other companies that were um, multi-billion-dollar exits. Most notably, a Mobike, which was another one of our portfolio companies in China, which is uh, one of those micro-mobility bike-sharing companies that you probably saw the, the bikes on the streets of China. Uh, we sold it for uh, almost three billion dollars to Meituan, and what was definitively the best exit in the entire micro mobility space. I mean, look at where names like Bird and others are trading today. Um, it's a, it was a, it was an incredibly successful outcome. Um, so, so we, the founder was moving into the EV space, and it, and he, you know, because of having built other billion dollar companies, not just Mobike. There was this perception that he was really just kind of putting the company together almost like he was constructing it with an instruction manual he knew who to hire for pr who to bring money in from who to kind of bring in for design and and manufacturing and so overall it it, it had a it had a bit more um, of a calm rise than, than than some of these other businesses which are very touch and go at the very beginning but i think there was still deep distrust that the chinese could build a globally leading electric vehicle product. You had the BYDs and kind of historic um, OEMs that had been good at manufacturing but not good at design. And so we, you know, we looked at that. We, we we saw other U.S. and kind of U.S.-based PE funds and global growth funds that shied away from the company at the time we went in because they just simply couldn't underwrite that China could build a global EV leader. Um, and again, lo and behold, it it became uh, at one point even during that that kind of valuation mania. The, the second or third most valuable car company in the world. And today they're selling cars not only in China, but they've opened up showrooms in Northern Europe, in Norway, in Germany, um, and have huge demand globally for this product. It, it, as an EV owner, someone owns both a Tesla and a Neo, I can tell you that the Neos are actually a better drive, are more comfortable, um, and uh, at a much more reasonable price point. And so, um, you know, this really does have the makings of a global electric vehicle company for China, but at the time, there was very little faith that they could do something at that scale. So how do you make the decision, given all the other skepticism? What gives you so much confidence that you've got the right, you're on the right side when you're looking at this? So we knew the, the data that China would make up a majority of the demand for electric vehicles on a going forward basis. We saw the exuberance for the likes of Tesla in China. But this company was offering a product that, as I said, was on par with Tesla, but at a third of the price point. Um, but at a similar kind of design and specification level. Um, and again, this was a founder that we felt very strongly about who knew how to raise capital, knew how to put a team together, um, how to work with regional governments to secure kind of key um, funding concessions and other support to offset the costs of building up his infrastructure. Um, and so we, for us, it was, a, it was a no brainer to back the business and back the founder, just given what we knew from a secular trend and, and his capabilities.
Yeah. When you're looking at these companies, do you is it is it enough for you that they that they succeed in the Chinese market or are you looking at some of these investments and thinking, could this be a global brand? Could this be a brand outside of China? We were one of the first firms to really believe deeply in this China going global strategy. Our perception was that um, certainly for hardware, China has the ability to be a global leader. And you, you see it in the smartphone space. You see it now in EVs. Um, you know, you see it in batteries. Um, you see it in televisions and other kind of home electronics that when it comes to hardware, China has the highest quality kind of production at the lowest cost point. Um, what we saw coming was, though, in the kind of the services space and particularly in the consumer facing space. If, if you are a mobile native technology user today, someone who consumes um, technology through your mobile phone on a native basis, China is building better applications for you today that are better suited to your behavior than the West. And that's again because technology hit China just at the right time that people were adopting technology and using these services um, and, and leaping rungs on the evolutionary ladder of technology adoption. So going straight to mobile payment or e-commerce rather than going through those kind of intermediary steps. Yeah, I always think about payments uh, because we know that, you know, that 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 they're living their entire life um, on, on a mobile platform. Um, how much do you worry about especially as somebody who bridges, you know, both of these worlds, and that was your sort of intent or desire in the beginning. How much do you worry when you're investing and putting capital to work about the political risk, the regulatory risk? I mean, we saw what, what happened to Huawei here. And, you know, there is there are certainly a lot of people, um, I can think of some of them by name, who, who, who absolutely argue about letting China become a global brand in some of these businesses. They deeply distrust the intention of that. Does sure. that does that worry you from an investment point of view when you're making these big bets on no matter how great the founder is? Certainly. And we have to uh, factor that in and discount that in when we're looking at these companies. And one of our jobs is to help them navigate that geopolitical uncertainty and help them think about what are the right markets to expand into that are still receptive to those products and also what products to invest in that won't face as much kind of geopolitical headwinds. So Huawei is obviously in a very sensitive sector. We've had a lot more success investing in Chinese companies in the consumer-facing space, so cross-border e-commerce players, cross-border communications and entertainment, uh, sectors that are less controversial, less kind of sensitive to national security, um, and also ensuring that those businesses go towards markets that are more favorable, so Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and others. Um, and but we're you know every day I'm I'm working here in New York, kind of monitoring and Washington monitoring where the winds are blowing and trying again to stay four or five years out ahead of those um, from an investment perspective, but also ensuring that we're beneficiaries of it. For instance, as the U.S. pushed out a lot of leading scientists that were of Chinese um, birth or origin, a lot of those have come back to China to build incredible businesses that otherwise wouldn't have been built in China. So we're also investing in those founders as they come home. So, that, so there are also benefits to the geopolitical kind of bifurcation. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about communication entertainment, and it seems everything's controversial because we know what's happening with TikTok. So, you know, to try to, to, try to decide what sector is going to maybe not be under the glare of the spotlight. It seems pretty difficult for sure. Interesting that you mentioned the Middle East. Is that, um, I, I think in, when we were talking right before we came on air, you um, are often traveling through there. How does that tie into your investment decisions when you're looking at what companies to fund? Is that a 
is that a market that's right for China? Is that is that influencing where you're investing? Certainly, I mean the the Middle East has been hugely receptive to Chinese products, and you know we've we've seen you know high level delegation visits going both directions over the last um, six eight months, um, starting with Xi Jinping visiting uh, Saudi Arabia back in December. Uh, that that door has opened now significantly, and the the Middle Eastern markets and sources of capital are actually working to displace a lot of that that Western capital is coming out of the market, and they're seeing that corridor for growth and for creating a bit more of a competitive dynamic. So, you know, if, an, if a country like Saudi Arabia is choosing a cloud provider, they would kind of have Ali Cloud and Baidu Cloud or Tencent Cloud compete with, you know, Microsoft or AWS. And so it creates a, a, a better kind of dynamic for them as they're building out their infrastructure to be able to choose between the two markets rather than just being um, incumbent to one. And so we're seeing a lot of receptivity out of that market for Chinese products, for sure. Interesting. So this sort of brings us to your to your fourth trade, which is an, is another one of your worst, um, and it's and it's sort of a broader theme, and that's straying outside your zone of expertise. What do you mean by that? I know so I, I think, think we know what it means, but sort of what, how does this? How, why did this make it onto the the bad trades? Well, you know, I, I've just found in life that when you go outside of your zone of excellence, which for us is, you know, largely I would say sectoral and geographic, you, you start to have really tough outcomes. So if we're making investments, for instance, in the United States or in a geography where we don't have uh, a deeply embedded uh, kind of base of talent and, you know, kind of insight, um, and even if we're following what we think are the smart names, the you know, the blue chip um, Silicon Valley VCs or the regional VCs investing in a product, it usually doesn't end well for us. And what we found to the contrary is, as, for instance, as a firm, we started investing in the Middle East four years ago. When we first came to the market, we actually followed other blue chip names, and those were some of our worst investments in the region. As soon as we took time to build out our own team, to understand the market deeply and make our own investments um, that had no correlation with the rest of the market, we started outperforming the market. And we started finding companies and founders that were um, dismissed by the, by the regional market as well that ultimately ended up being some of most valuable companies um, and steering away from models that a myopic regional investor might be really attracted to. But we know because of the way that kind of model has evolved in Asia, that ultimately it's not going to scale. It's gonna, it's not going to become profitable. And so, the more that we started, just just like that first example of of boss Ziping, when we trust our own instincts and kind of go against the grain um, and underwrite these transactions wholly because of what we believe about the founder and the opportunity, uh, that ends up working very well for us, rather than trusting the insights and the guidance of supposedly who is the smart money in another geography or sector that we're not yet fully present. It sounds like you really lean on the the local roots and the have intelligence to. you get from sort of hiring locally. Is that right? That's right. We have to have the best minds in each one of our geographies. So today we have teams sitting in India, uh, in the Middle East, in South America, in, in North Africa, um, and of course in China. And in all those geographies, we have what we believe to be are some of the best local investors on our team, but that also have a full appreciation of kind of the playbook and the experiences and lessons learned from China so that we can apply those to the local market and kind of have a unique viewpoint that's not fully shared by all the regional investors. So how do you find these people? Uh, what's, you know, your, we, what's your litmus test for hiring? What, what, what's going to, because it sounds like there's a little bit of a kind of Davian Goliath, kind of, you know, we're not going to do things the way other people do things. How, what's the what's the litmus test for somebody who fits into that, your vibe? 
So generally, it's it's hiring people that are maybe a, a li little younger and are still have a lot to prove. Um, so you know, I think hiring kind of older existing talent that are kind of set in their ways often is not the right approach. We really do want to hire people that have a, a full appreciation of Asia and particularly China and how it has evolved. Uh, I think that's critical because if you have that kind of China IQ, again, you can you can save save yourself a lot of trouble and going down roads on certain business models and trends that we know ultimately don't work. And so we like people that have spent some time in China, worked inside of a Chinese fund or corporate and kind of have that experience, but are still from that local market who are still Indian nationals or from the Middle East. Um, and then obviously people that are not afraid to kind of take very bold positions um, and think outside of what the rest of the investor community is and kind of carve new, new, new territory. And with that combination, we end up having a lot of success. Do you think of yourself as a contrarian? I think we have been pretty good about always being five or six years out ahead of the market. So geographically, we've been going to markets five or six years ahead of the rest of the, the batch. From a regulatory perspective, we've been four or five years out ahead of changes. Um, and so I don't know if it's as much contrarian as it is someone who has good kind of foresight into how the world will evolve over the coming few years and then putting our money behind that strategy before people fully appreciate it. Then the market will catch up to it. But it's so, so it's it's kind of just being early. Yeah, a bit pioneering, kind of frontier type stuff. Absolutely. So when you're talking about your expertise, but your your global your footprint's pretty large around the world. You kind of spend time everywhere. Um, you have this kind of global perspective, so you don't really identify specifically with a region, although you're, you know, you, you now have deep roots in Asia. So how do you know what's in your area of expertise or not? How do you, how, what, what, how do you find, why is this a mistake that you think you make? Like, how do you veer out of what you define as your expertise? So, so what we do is, for instance, we, we you know, we have a, a set of business models that we really think highly of that are disruptive and really badly needed in the geographies in which we're investing. And so what we'll do is what we would call kind of the anti-Tiger Global model. We will, rather than, you know, picking a model we like and buying the board or indexing the world and buying into that company across every one of those markets, we will instead evaluate that model across five or six markets. So we'll look at that market in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, in North America, um, and, and, and in um, uh, Sub-Saharan, whatever it is. And then we'll go sector, country by country um, uh, and, and really look at the kind of key KPIs across those, those verticals and look at how that, that company is performing and to determine whether it's a best value for dollar investment that we're making. And if it's not best value for dollar across all those global geographies, uh, then we'll drop, the, we'll drop the opportunity. What's, what's, a, what's one of these areas where that you ventured out of, whether it's a geography or a sector where you thought, well, that, that, this is why I should not veer out of my area of expertise? What's uh, tripped you up? Uh, so we've, we made an investment, for instance, in a cloud kitchen business um, that's done very well. And since, uh, we, since we invested, has increased in valuation almost 15x and become a unicorn. But we know from our understanding in China that actually this is a model that usually struggles. Uh, and there actually are no cloud business, cloud, cloud uh, kitchen companies in China today. And because it ultimately forms a part of a value chain that's um, essentially, um, uh, you know, just incorporated into the food aggregators and delivery houses. And so um, it's an example of a model that we should not have invested in because we know it ultimately doesn't work in China and we think ultimately will struggle elsewhere in the world. Mm. So 
I, I, I understand that you are partly invested in a Spanish football team. Is that right? So how does that plug into your area of expertise? That would seem like it would be something that would be under the bad trade. So how does that work? It actually fits perfectly with what we do because my, my, my thesis on that team was I could take a relatively small and unknown team and first through kind of really systematic investment in the team and our scouting and our data analysis and, um, and how we evaluate talent and players in a very similar manner to the way that we evaluate companies across the world and kind of put them on, um, on kind of big sheets and look at them across all kinds of different operational metrics. Um, that we could outperform some of the big guys who have much larger budgets than us. So a little bit of a kind of a money ball approach. Yeah. Um, and so that's, so, you know, we're today with a budget of about 45 million euros playing against teams like Real Madrid and Barcelona who have uh, payrolls of, of um, uh, 680 million, somewhere in that range each. Um, so it's a huge David and Goliath story, um, but we're able to beat them. Over the last couple of years, we beat Real Madrid, we beat Barcelona, we beat Atletico de Madrid, we beat Betis, so some of the biggest club names in Europe, uh, as well as beating other European teams. We beat Roma this year, we beat so it's uh, a Manchester little engine United. That what's, what's the team? It's called uh, Cadiz. Yeah. Um, but then we globalize it. And we also bring this team to a global audience. And so we've been able to generate huge social media followings and uh, and new revenue by um, building social media teams in the Middle East, in in in, in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, China, to create localized content that really brings the team to fans that were not well served, and ultimately generate for us a lot of support from um, from from fans that would have never followed us. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, Man U's uh, global footprint. So, are you, does this mean you have to hang out with Ryan Reynolds now? Because like, isn't he isn't he also <laughs> doing something similar? He copied me, and he did it at a much lower scale. So he bought into a fifth tier team in England, which is now a fourth tier team. I bought into a first tier team in Spain. So he's playing <laughs> against teams you've never heard of in cities you've never heard of, and we're playing against uh, you know Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United. So we're doing this at a much higher scale. Yeah, you better watch out. Those are fighting words. You don't want Reynolds and his and his uh, legions of fans coming for probably you. Probably not. Probably not. But I, I like to poke the bear and see if we can't. We'll, we'll try to. We'll try to play him at some point for fun. I think that could be a fantastic fundraising um, episode for sure. But so, are you going to do more of those kind of sports investments if your if your model fits that? Could we see you expanding that part of your could, portfolio? Could be. And I've had we've had a lot of inbounds now that we've had so much success at this. Um, I do that on a personal basis. So we've not yet made that an institutional strategy. It's not out of our fund, um, but it's something that we could expand as a strategy now, given the success we've had at Cadiz um, and, and look at other teams um, or other sports. And we have inbounds from other really unique, interesting opportunities that we might make announcements about over the coming months where we're bringing new sports that are being pioneered, say, out of the, out of the U.S. into markets that are, are not yet they're where they're not yet present. An incredible journey uh, for someone who's um, really getting started, um, but fascinating to hear the perspective of someone who's spending a lot of time in China um, about how he's doing things differently in the investment thesis. China can be a really controversial topic, so it was super interesting to hear that. I'm sure we'll get a lot of interesting feedback, and we always encourage it. And we'll be sure to have Ben back on again to talk both about the sports investments and also what he sees happening um, from a macro perspective and a sector perspective in China now that we know he's in the weeds there. Thanks to everyone for watching. We'll be back with the Daily Briefing soon. Take care. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF 
at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN.